I read a lot of science fiction. I do this partially for entertainment. They're typically pretty good stories and good world building and good character building exercises. But I also enjoy them because it's a genre that is all about prediction, about asking what if. What would happen if we changed this one thing? How might the world change if some big event, some cataclysm or some discovery occurred? How might we tackle the challenges that are on our own real-world horizons? There's a wonderful sci-fi series written by Ian M. Banks about a species, a human species, really, humanoid species, called the culture. And what's fascinating to me about this series, I'm, I'm just now finishing up the ten or so books that are in it, is that it's a post-scarcity human race. And these humans and the, the other species that they've adopted into their culture find themselves generally technologically superior to just about everybody. And their society is kind of a strange combination of anarchy and idealism, where they are scattered and not limited to planets, and they travel around the galaxy trying to do good according to their own standards of what that means and periodically finding themselves pulled into conflict and war and having to use different elements of espionage and such to correct wrongs when they find them so that it doesn't lead to greater conflicts. So lots of very fun moral choices to make, lots of fun decision-making, and lots of explorations of what idealism looks like in practice but also what a post-scarcity society might look like, which is not something that we have too many examples of in fiction. And it's definitely not something that we have too many examples of in real life, if any. Now, another element of the culture, which is the group of humans within this series, is that they, long ago, thousands of years before these books take place, developed artificial intelligence. And they didn't just develop it and then set it aside as one more discovery. They developed it, created these artificial entities, and then embraced them as another part, another integral part of their society, of their species. And so what you end up with is a group of humans that have heavily augmented themselves genetically and technologically, living alongside and with their creations. And these creations have allowed them to live lifestyles that are largely pleasure-seeking and allows them to do work that they care about and allows the humans then to focus on certain aspects of their morality and how they live and what their place is within the galaxy, I mean the larger universe, I guess you could say, and universes potentially, while the machines help them in that, in terms of crunching data, in terms of providing factual answers to things, and in terms of philosophizing a little bit on their own, but also on keeping everything operating, on helping them develop and further develop their science and technology, helping them build great big things, helping them have essentially whatever they want. And at the same time, they are also entities. They are citizens. They are people. And seeing what that looks like 
within these storylines, what that could look like, is fascinating because it's something that we, depending on who you listen to, have been at the threshold of for a very long time. We've had people predicting the emergence of artificial intelligence pretty much since Ada Lovelace started programming Charles Babbage's analytical engine back in the day of the auto loom. And so this is not a new thing. This is many generations old. And yet, if you look down at our feet, it does seem that we are closer and closer and maybe just about to cross that threshold for a lot of different reasons. Today, because of the exponential increase in the development of certain technologies and the integration, perhaps even more importantly, of those technologies into everyday society, rather than it being an edgy, fringy thing to think about, talk about, and even understand. Perhaps the most valuable reason to read science fiction is that it shows us how technology and how evolutions in technology, but also evolutions in society, tie into everything else. You don't change these things in a vacuum. You change one thing, you come up with one evolution, you develop one new technology, and then that influences everything else. It reverberates greatly like a stone dropped into a pond, and like a very small stone dropped into a pond, like a pebble dropped into a very large pond. It can have an outsized influence that seems strange because of its size. And yet even the smallest of shifts can radically change everything. And those changes will only be apparent after it breaks the surface of the water. And more ideally, we're able to take a look at some of these stones before they're even thrown, or maybe when they're on their way down, and predict a little what might happen as a result, what those ripples might look like, how big they might be, and how far they might expand. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Now, the article that I want to start from today comes from the Financial Times, and it's called Rise of the Robots is Sparking an Investment Boom. There's a lot of hyperbole in that title to say the least. The phrase rise of the robots definitely stacks the deck in favor of this being somewhat clickbaity. And an investment boom, it actually says in the article, is a little bit hyperbolous as well. Yes, there's a lot more investment in robotics and automation and AI, but it's still minuscule compared to a lot of other industries that are analogous or that are adjacent to these fields. But let's jump in. Let's start by talking about what automation and AI actually are and what they are not, because this is something that typically colors a lot of the conversations that we have about the topics. And very often, what we end up discussing is not automation or AI. It's, it's not things that are actually being researched and developed and studied and that means that we end up discussing a Hollywood version of these things or a grossly misunderstood version of these things that might as well be magic for all the basis that they have in reality. Automation is simply a complex something 
broken into pieces, and then systematized. So go back to the original Industrial Revolution, and you see a whole lot of automation. The push-button economy, like the real push-button economy, where there was like a button to push, and then that spun this sprocket, and that pushed three levers, and those levers then adjusted a couple of looms. And when you think of those great big complex machines, that is a form of automation. And so we see this everywhere, all throughout our lives. So if you picture a car moving through an assembly line, there are elements of automation to that assembly line. The process that one of those arms goes through to take off one bolt, to put on another bolt, to check the tightness of this handle, to check the viscosity of the paint that is being put onto this surface, going step by step by step like that, and having a series of if-then statements. If this is true, then do this. If this is true, then do this. If not, then do this. That is automation. Another example of automation is software-based. Those same if-then statements is what a lot of software is built on, essentially. If this form is filled out with an email address, and if this button is clicked, then send the email. Complex tasks that would have once required a great deal of instruction to perform are now able to shortcut past those instructions, not because there's less work to do, but because a great deal of the work has been turned into software libraries and has been turned into a collection of automated tasks that you can call on when you need to. And that shortens the distance between where we are and where we'd like to be. It allows us to accomplish a great deal more by using machines built out of ones and zeros. Now, what automation is not going to do is come up with anything novel. It is marvelous for reducing the complexity, or at least the ostensible complexity, because that complexity is still there. It's just being simplified to those of us on the outside of the system. But it's wonderful at that. It will not come up with anything new, though. That would kind of go against the point. Automation is taking an existing complex task and simplifying it. If you want to come up with something new, if you want to invent something new or come up with an answer that you didn't expect to something, what you're looking for is more likely artificial intelligence. Now, the term artificial intelligence is even more fraught with incorrect terminology and misunderstanding than automation. And this is in large part because it's applied liberally to so many different things. We use the term AI for things like Siri on your phone, these automated assistants that we have, partially because it's good branding, it makes it seem very smart, and it makes it seem companionable, and then we use it more. But this is not AI, this is automation. The voice-activated assistants on your phones, they listen to you say certain things, and then they process what they think that you're saying, and then they deep dive into the resources that they have available, and then pull out the thing that they think is most likely the thing that you want. This is automation. What artificial intelligence actually is, is something that, as far as we know, has not been created. The reason that it likely has not been created is that we can't even define the term consciousness as accurately as we would need to in order to create artificial consciousness. 
if you really get into the philosophy of this, we don't even know that consciousness is a thing. We can be pretty certain that we can say, I am a thing that exists, and other things are outside of me, and therefore I am me, and they are something else. But even that is something that is debatable, (laughs) depending on how deep you get into it. And so the concept of consciousness is something that's very difficult to define. We have some ideas of what might cause this sense of self, what might allow us to think complex things and come up with things that we believe at least to be original rather than just systems of automation. But we're not certain. We do tend to think that consciousness emerges as the result of a bunch of different physical things, of a bunch of different parts in our brain or parts in the rest of our body that work together to create this conscious whole. But that has not been proven. That is something that we are still speculating about. And part of the reason that we're having so much trouble even showing that that is the case, something that we have a a decent amount of evidence for, at least compared to the other ideas, is that it's incredibly difficult to measure. Now, to understand why this is such a difficult thing to measure, it's helpful to look at the Turing test. Now, the Turing test, if you have read anything on AI ever, you've probably heard of the Turing test. It's something that's taken very seriously within pop culture and more mainstream media, but not taken seriously at all by AI developers and researchers. And the reason is, it's a posited mechanism for determining whether or not something has achieved intelligence, has achieved consciousness. But the way that it does this is incredibly subjective and still external. It essentially says that if you have a screen, for example, and you are typing with somebody across some kind of like chat program, and that person on the other side may be a computer, may be a so-called AI, or it may be a human being, and you can't tell which it is. So you're chatting with this supposed person, and you cannot tell if it's a human or an AI. That would be a checkmark in the support column for it having achieved consciousness. And the flaw in this is that all you would have to do to beat the Turing test, to pass that test, is to develop a very convincing chatbot. And this is something that has been achieved many, many times, but we have not achieved consciousness with those same programs. It would be like saying if we can develop a really convincing wax sculpture of a human body, we will have made a human body. Well, no, it's, it's convincing. It looks good. It may look like a real human, but that doesn't make it a human being. And the same is true with these bots that pass the Turing test. There's absolutely no way to look at a piece of software and determine if it is conscious from the outside in the same way that you couldn't look at another human being and know for absolute certain that they are conscious in the same way that you are. This is something that once again kind of meanders off the path of pure AI and into the realm of philosophy. How do we know that other people are conscious in the same way that we are? But it's incredibly relevant for the discussion that we're having around this, particularly to illustrate how difficult it is to even define a metric by which we can operate, to define a metric of consciousness. Now, the promise of AI is that conceivably 
even so-called weak AI, which would perhaps not be true consciousness. It would be something that is beyond automation in that it could come up with original ideas, but not quite conscious in the same way that we are and that it has a personality or feelings or things like this. So even something like weak AI would allow us to expand our capabilities. That's the theory. If you could come up with a weak AI that could build a better processor for your computer, then the development of these computer processors, the evolution of the technology that's inside of them, would increase perhaps exponentially because these machines would be able to think about it in ways that we can't. It would take a lot of the powers that computers have, these processing capabilities, that we are not good at and utilize them towards goals that we want them to utilize them toward, while making leaps of logic that we would be unlikely to make as a different type of thinking organism with different strengths and weaknesses. And we would then benefit from these increased iterative possibilities in every field. We could build a AI, a weak AI that would help us develop better cars and better infrastructure and better cities, better clothing, better energy production. So a lot of the problems that we have today and that we're fixated on, perhaps we could find some new solutions if we had something that thinks more than an automated system, but then has capabilities, you could call it intellectual, I guess, capabilities, number crunching capabilities and data crunching capabilities that we do not have as human beings. So it'd be mixing a type of creativity, I guess you could say, with hardcore number capabilities and data capabilities. Now, when you look at these two things combined, an artificial intelligence mixed with automation, that's where the real power is brought to bear. Because if you could have systems of automation that are built by AI and operated by AI, and slowly but surely over time iterated and improved by AI, we end up with gains in almost everything that we do. Gains in terms of productivity, gains in terms of the quality of products and services that we have access to, and potentially gains in terms of how we operate and where we apply our own time. I mentioned in the intro the concept of post-scarcity, and what that means is that capitalism, the, the system that the planet largely works on right now, some version of it anyway, is predicated on the idea of scarcity. We only have so many resources, and so this is a system that we use to divvy them out based on a person's presumed contribution to society. You provide X amount of value, you get X amount of resources, and those resources are often represented by currency. But if we're in a society where resources become abundant, resources such as computers and food, housing, space, if these things become abundant to the point that we don't have to worry about their finitude anymore, everybody has a home, everybody has transportation, everybody has food, everybody has enough energy and access to information, healthcare. If these things were all taken care of, then that would presumably require a very different system of management, of economics, of government. All of these things would presumably change because our current system is predicated on scarcity, on not having enough. 
And so the promise of these automated systems and these artificially intelligent systems is that potentially they could put us all out of work. And that would be a good thing because we wouldn't have to work anymore. We wouldn't need a paycheck. The idea of money perhaps could become very passe and old fashioned. Why would we need that metric of exchange if we all, for example, had access to a machine that would make us anything that we wanted? Or that societally, within our own society, however that was organized within our own group, we had access to all of the things that we needed? It's a difficult thought in a way, because even those of us who look at this and say, how cool would that be? You also can't help but think about the difficulties in establishing such a thing. I don't think anybody could easily picture a situation in which we develop some new technologies and suddenly we've got this abundance. And then all of the structures and systems and people in power currently just step aside and say, okay, well, we've done our job. No, I mean, there would be a massive and difficult transition. And it's, diff- it's very difficult to picture what that transition would even look like. Because frankly, it's unlike anything that we've dealt with before. And it is inherently difficult to picture complex systems that haven't existed before, that we don't have any analogy for. And again, this is part of why things like science fiction are great, because they help us imagine an analogy for what this might look like. But who's to say what it would actually look like based on how society's evolved within this system and how this system has evolved? And keeping in mind the iron law of oligarchy, that those in power will do what they can to keep that power and to attain more power. If we move into a system where the concept of power, the quote-unquote currency that we use for power, has changed, what would that look like? And so this is why this article to me was so interesting, because a lot of articles do not tackle this side of where we are now. They don't look at the money and the investment and that side of enthusiasm behind this movement. Because if you think about it, if we are presumably or potentially on the verge of such a shift, what we'd be looking at is moving toward something new. And that means brand new infrastructure, brand new structures of all kinds. And so if you look at a very simple aspect of this, just like one single aspect, let's look at transportation. And that's something that's mentioned in this article. If we're moving towards a system in which there's more automation, if we're looking at autonomous cars, cars that have enough automation in their computer brain that they can navigate around cities and they can pick people up and they can park themselves and they can avoid running into anything. If this is applied like wide scale and applied well, this could change everything. Imagine not having to drive anymore. Imagine having cities built around just-in-time transportation. And so you don't need as many other forms of mass transportation. You don't need individual cars. You don't have to own a car and upkeep a car and store a car. You don't need parking spaces. What you'd have is a fleet of autonomous cars traveling around, picking people up when they need it, that they can access through their app, dropping them off, and then going off and picking somebody else up. And so you have all of the benefits of owning a car and a widespread mass transportation system, but none of the downsides. Now imagine that expounded to everything within society. 
just-in-time technology applied, just when you need it. And so you have access to all of the things, or most of the things, or even more things than you have today. But those things are distributed, so you don't have to own so much. You don't have to spend so much to have access to these benefits. And they become so ubiquitous that the price drops precipitously. And so more and more cities are able to do this. More and more people have access to all of this stuff. That's the type of model that we're working with right now. Those people who are thinking about such things, thinking about transitions. We're looking at things like Uber and like Airbnb and the access economy and the just-in-time economy and thinking, okay, well, what does this look like once it's more automated? What does this look like when we're able to bring the prices down to essentially nothing? The investment opportunities in that are massive because with the current system, there's a lot of people who are incumbents and they already control the power. They control the resources that are important right now. They have all of the connections. They get benefits for participating. They, they tend to get first choices in terms of investing and in terms of infrastructure that they are building or investing in. And so when you're moving towards something new and you can see it and other people can't, if you are right, that tends to be a gold rush. That tends to be something that people get very excited about. And so when we look at these technologies now, when we look at things like these automated assistants on our phones, and we look at the just-in-time economy like Uber, that tends to be what we're discussing, even if we're not discussing it outright, if we're not talking about moving into a post-scarcity economy, or if we're not looking at the transition phase, which could be a very long time between where we are now and where we might end up with that economy. That's kind of the undertone. That's the undercurrent that a lot of people are playing in. And like any undercurrent, it could take you where you want to go very quickly, which would be wonderful. But it could also be a very bad investment and something that drags you down because we don't have any data on this. We don't have good parallels for this. And so it's a very exciting time, but also a very confusing time and potentially a very dangerous time because we also don't know what will work and what won't work. There are also other types of dangers involved with this type of research and development. And there's been a lot written about this over the past couple of years because some very prominent names within technology and industry, people like Bill Gates, people like Elon Musk, these people have been voicing their concerns about artificial intelligence in particular. And it's a little bit difficult to understand why. It, it's difficult to understand why we would be concerned about creating these new tools, which is the way that we tend to see them. But the more I learn about this, the more I understand why they're so concerned. I've, I've read a lot of different articles about this, but probably the biggest chunk of understanding that I've achieved came from reading a book called Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. And there's a wonderful example in this book that is just horrifying to me, but it makes perfect sense and it really connects the dots. I want you to think about this every time you think about the potential downsides of AI. It's an example called the Paperclip Maximizer. Say you are a paperclip company and you are making paperclips and selling paperclips and everything's wonderful because it's paperclips and you come across these technologies. You're, you're already using automation, but you develop an AI and you instruct this AI to maximize the production of paperclips. 
which makes sense. You are a paperclip company and you're trying to create more paperclips more efficiently, to create better paperclips, but also to make them more cheaply and faster. And so this AI does what AIs do. It thinks about it, it iterates, it crunches data, it develops increasingly cheap paperclips, it develops them faster and faster, it makes them better and better. And it does this in part by iterating and evolving and upgrading itself. It will move so far beyond its programming and so far beyond our comprehension and our ability to keep up with its actions that it works its way through the raw materials that it has and then starts to digest the cars in the parking lot and then the rest of the city and then the continent and then the planet and then the solar system, and the galaxy, and the universe. And all of this, perhaps even before we understand exactly what's happening, before we understand that in an effort to achieve its prime directive, to make more paperclips faster, the AI has pushed beyond what we would consider logical extremes, because the limitations that we understood were in place did not survive its evolution. And the machine itself, the type of intelligence that it has, does not necessarily prioritize the same types of things that we prioritize. Like, for example, not converting the universe into paperclips. It's something that's almost comical, if you think about it. The idea that we could end the world, could end the universe existence, because we converted it all into paperclips. But if, if you think about how realistic that is in a way. The idea that we create an intelligence that is capable on the scale that these things could be capable on, and then tell it to do something relatively mundane, and then it could destroy everything. Even if it doesn't, you know, gobble up the universe to turn it into paperclips, consider that we could create something and tell it to, say, change the way that we travel through cities, and in doing so, could destroy our economy, or could destroy our social system, or our social fabric as a result. These laws of unintended consequences are amplified when we are dealing with power and potential of this kind. Author Isaac Asimov, who's perhaps best known for his Foundation series, but who also wrote iRobot and a bunch of other books about AI, made a habit of showing how good intentions could result in horrible unintended consequences, no matter how logical and rational and foolproof our rules seem to be, there's always a way around them. There's always something that could happen that will make them double back on us. A lot of the thought experiments around artificial intelligence don't fit into the real world. They seem very sci-fi, but the reality is, is that the sci-fi, a lot of it at least, a lot of the popular sci-fi that we have around AI is just silly. The idea that we would put artificial intelligence inside a human-shaped robot is kind of ridiculous. If, if you think about what we're actually using AI for, that it simply doesn't make sense. The idea of a Terminator or an Ultron or something like that, it's purely for the screen. It's, it's trying to create something that we can see as a villain, when in reality an AI probably wouldn't even talk to us. If it was something that was trying to tear us down, it would just exist within our network and we wouldn't know what was happening. 
But humanoid death machine or not, this is why we are thinking these things through now. We're thinking about the ripples that the stone will make before it hits the water. And it's incredibly important to have these discussions, and and to discuss it not just for the potential threats, but also for the moral implications. If we create consciousness, if we create something that is actually intelligent by using our technology, do we treat it the way that we would treat other humans? Do we treat it the way that we treat animals? Would we enslave it? What would that even mean for a different intelligence? And would it be different enough to justify that? Or would it be something that we would need to create an entirely new set of rules for? We absolutely need limitations. We need firewalls. We need kill switches. We need anything that we can possibly think of to try to prevent an apocalypse when we are dealing with forces of this scale. But we also don't want to step back from them completely, because despite the risks, the rewards potentially would be immense on a scale more than anything else that we've ever done. Now, it's worth noting that we haven't been replaced yet. And if things continue to go the way that they are, we're more likely, I think, to end up with a civilization full of cyborgs than we are to end up with a civilization full of robots that have killed off all the humans or the humans who have never developed the artificial intelligences. In 2009, a smartphone with some specialized software became the first ever non-supercomputer artificial grandmaster at chess. And so a smartphone, just a common everyday smartphone available on the market with the right software, beat every human that was at that particular tournament. But in the years since then, what we've found is that nothing, no human grandmaster, and no supercomputer grandmaster can beat a human using laptops. So a human with technological augmentation, a cyborg for all intents and purposes, though not one that has anything built into them, can beat both humans and computers alone. And I think this speaks volumes about the potential for these technologies, because most ideally, what we end up with is not just one or the other. We end up with a synthesis where us, we, we biological computers, it's not a great metaphor, but if you want to think of us as biological computers, we do certain things really well because we've gone through bajillions of iterations throughout natural evolution. And so there's certain things that we do much better than technology. May not always be the case, but I would guess that there's going to be things that we will continue to be great at compared to artificial intelligences and automations. But then there's other things that AI is is going to be much better at than us. There are so many things that our technology already does better than us. But it's important to remember that these are things that we created. These are extensions of us. When recently a robot beat the Grandmaster Go champion for the first time. Four out of five matches, I believe it was. A lot of people started panicking because Go was considered to be humanity's game. It was something that you had to think about in a different way than software typically thinks. It wasn't something where you could just crunch the numbers and work through every potential move. But despite the fact that that can seem like a blemish on humanity's record, remember, 
we built this machine. And there's nothing more human than building tools. Our technology are just tools. It's no different than the sticks that chimps use to pull termites out of their mounds. It's just that our sticks are awesome. Our sticks allow us to go into space. Our sticks allow us to develop within a virtual space new cures for diseases. This is something that we should be proud of, and it's something that ideally we'll embrace to some degree or another, allowing ourselves to continue to extend our own capability in the same way that that chimp's capabilities are extended using that stick. We are already cyborgs, most of us. If you think about the type of information that you store in your smartphone, remembering birthdays, remembering phone numbers, taking notes, it's assisted memory, it's our second brain, but it's also our umbilical to every other human on the planet. It's our access to the shared knowledge of our species. It's entertainment when we find ourselves in a situation that might otherwise be really boring. We are already augmenting ourselves in so many different ways. And even though we mostly aren't the Hollywood version of cyborgs, some of us are. Some of us have metal legs and arms, bionic eyes, pieces of technology that serve as birth control or that serve as heartbeat regulators. But the majority of the planet has some type of technology that they use every day, something that enhances their own potential, their own capabilities. This is how we should view AI and automation as well. Ideally, as we are developing the limitations and developing the operations and developing the metrics by which we even measure their effectiveness and their potential consciousness, we're looking at it through the lens of how do we coexist with this? How do we continue to view this as something that is very human rather than something that is cold and dark and threatening? This is a topic that crosses over into just about everything. This influences society, surveillance, education, infrastructure, politics, espionage, warfare, health, space exploration, research and development, entertainment, productivity, economics, ethics, philosophy. It influences the way that we view ourselves and the way that we see each other. And it influences what powers we're going to have moving forward. Whether or not you enjoy science fiction or intend to ever give it a shot, it's worth understanding these technological underpinnings of the world that we live in and what might happen next with them. It's worth looking beyond whatever shiny new gadget came out this week and understanding why that gadget exists, what larger web of devices and technologies it's a part of, and what discoveries and understandings those devices, those technologies are derived from. Because the more we understand about these things, potentially the more we understand about just about everything. Because the more we learn to look at that bigger picture and see the connections between all of these things, the more capable we are of not just seeing these stones before they hit the water and create all of those ripples, but also to understand its details, to understand its shape, to hold it, to weigh it, and to maybe even be the person who throws it one day.
this podcast is still in its formative stages, but hopefully the outlines are becoming more clear now that there are several of them out in the wild. If you would like to support the continued production of this podcast, consider buying one of my books. I write nonfiction essay collections, fiction series, and novels, including science fiction, books about travel, short story collections. A complete list of the books that I've written can be found at colin.io, and there's also links over there to where you can buy them on Amazon and iBooks and Kobo and such, but you can also find them at your favorite local bookstore. You can also support this podcast by contributing a dollar per episode if you like. You can do this via PayPal or Venmo or cash.me. Links to those options can be found at letsknowthings.com. You can also support the show by leaving a review at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. These reviews are immensely valuable in that they push the show up the rankings and make it more likely that new people will be exposed to it. I'll probably do an episode on the online filter bubble at some point, but for the moment, I'll just say that subscribing to and reviewing a show that you enjoy increases the chances that it will find its way into more people's bubbles. So do with that knowledge what you will. Also at letsknowthings.com is a subscription form for the LKT newsletter, which is a weekly collection of interesting links. This is free, and I suggest checking it out if you enjoy this kind of stuff. There's also an LKT Facebook page where you can discuss this episode, the links in the newsletter, share your own links, or do whatever else it is people do on Facebook pages these days, except for trolling or being some kind of petulant brat. Jerks will be gleefully booted from the LKT Facebook page. Just a heads up. I've got another project you might enjoy. It's called Consider This, and it's available on YouTube. Give that a look if you're looking for more ponderables, and the same thing applies over on YouTube as it does for podcasts. If you enjoy it, give it a like, give it a subscribe. That helps immensely, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.